Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, Nein and Nein, Ballon. I'm Nick Houghton at 40%German.com, and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox, who's been learning about duvet covers this week. So, Simon, how are you sleeping? First of all, bravo for the the real gusto you gave to that rendition of Nina's Thank you. anthem for the youth. Um, yeah, uh, so... Yeah, it's very, very good. I'm, what, what a co-host I'm blessed with. Man of so many talents. <laughs> uh, I, I've been learning to my hindrance about sleep a little bit this week. Changed the bed, mm-hmm. all the duvet and everything, thinking, yeah, good night's sleep, mm-hmm. looking forward to that. Got in and then had just like a really traumatically bad night's sleep because my thighs were getting hot. And I was just really aware of my thighs being hot. So yeah, bad night's sleep and then changed the duvet again mm-hmm. yesterday and then had a fantastic night's sleep, I think from, got an early night, 10 o'clock in bed thereabouts and then till about 9am this morning. So I'm feeling well rested. It's one of it's one of those uh, small treats you get as an adult is changing the bed sheets, isn't it? Like there's not many. It's, it's a special thing. Yeah. yeah really I, I'm a big fan of it. I do like making the bed. I mean, at school I had to make my bed for like an inspection every morning mm-hmm. so there is a real part of me that loves leaving a bed unmade in sort of an act of defiance nearly 20 years later um, yeah a- anarchy yeah, fresh, man fresh anarchy yeah. yeah i'm running my life <laughs> um, but i am also aware that talking about a really good night's sleep with you uh the father of an infant is probably a little bit insensitive how are you sleeping actually horribly i don't sleep very well anyway i sleep probably six hours at best Hi there, listener. It's Future Nick. What I know, and sadly poor past Nick doesn't know, is that we actually have a special guest in the early sections of the pod this week. It's my daughter, happily screaming in the background. Isn't she marvellous? Apologies if she disturbs you early doors, but she is very much like her father, far too many opinions. I mean, frankly, it's becoming a bit of a problem. Last week she declared war on capitalism and is attempting to unionise her daycare centre. I'm so bloody proud. Anyway, you were saying past Nick. But I've just started parental leave this week. Yeah, tell me about it, dude. One of the benefits of German society or the German state is that there is mandated time for uh, fathers to take uh, parental leave. I think it works out at something like 14 months. It's total parental leave that can be shared or distributed between the mother and father. In this instance, I've, I've got 10 weeks. 10 weeks of parental leave. So, uh, of course, before I did parental leave, my assumption was, and this is probably the assumption of most fathers, is like, ah, oh, I'll be fine. Like, there's not really much to do. It's just been chaos. I spent, I think, was it Wednesday or Thursday? I slept on the couch. She's getting her back teeth in, which are the most painful ones. And uh, my wife has to do work in the morning. I have to go to work in the morning. So I had to take the baby upstairs and we slept on the couch. Oh, well, I, I say we slept on the couch. She slept on the couch and I was curled in such a weird position as to mean that basically uh, my back isn't now like an accordion of some kind. So I'm, I'm turned into a walking musical instrument. My sleep pattern is non-existent and I'm in a world of sleep deprivation. We should stop talking about it. It's, it's triggered me. I, I, just one final thing before we move on then. I assume also that over this 10-week period, you have like zero excuses. Like you have to be the one up in the night uh, taking care of uh, a crying baby yeah of course but <laughs> but that's the thing right it's like that's the job obviously i've been working for the majority of she's almost a year now so i've been working for the majority of the time in the home office and i haven't seen her as much as as my wife and their relationship is a completely different thing to the relationship that we me and her have and it's about building that and part of that is mm. being 
a, like being the one who f- changes and feeds her, being the one who engages with her more often, you have to do it. And it's nice that Germany has or gives you the opportunity to do that. Uh, and there's there's actually super parental leave you can get. I think since last year, or the year before, you're actually allowed to request from your company up to 24 months of parental leave that can be divided evenly between wow. two parents. Obviously, that means you take a cut and pay. You basically, the state pays you a certain amount of your wages up to a point, and that's just the way the way the system works. But there's, I think, there's a different system if you take 24 months. But I mean, that's unrealistic unless, of course, you have like a child who has maybe some uh, physical issues or sick or whatever. What it mm. basically means is that I've changed one job for a different job. It's a much more fun job, but it still has, it's still, it's still intense, and you're <laughs> trying to keep a, a small child entertained without the ability to to communicate in the way you would communicate with anyone else it's exciting it's interesting you're learning a lot but at the same time it's just uh it's tiring you know it's tiring and do you have a firm promise from your company to not bother you during this period oh yeah i mean yeah yeah there's certain there's certain legal stipulations Mm -hmm. i know a lot of companies that aren't the same and I think, again, it's one of those, those situations where the benefits of parental leave don't always fall evenly between men and women. And it's it's a challenge for for a lot of women to get back to work after parental leave or uh, maternity mm. leave or to catch up. Sometimes there's, there's a feeling that they have to catch up, you know. It's not all, like, rosy and wonderful. Certainly for my wife, mm. she's now having to... She's having to do all the all the virtual meetings that I was doing before, and I think it's it's just tiring. And starting out doing that is yeah, it's intense. So I have to be very careful not to be either complain too much about it or celebrate it too much. I'm trying to walk a very even path of like I have ten weeks of parental leave. It is good. I enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> There is there is no negative side to this. I feel like I'm in I'm in like one of those uh, hostage videos, you know. It's like, my baby is wonderful, and I'm like blinking a message to the camera. <laughs> I'm blinking in Morse code, like save me. No, it's no, it's great. It's great. It's just not a lot of sleep, and I don't imagine I'm going to get a lot of sleep in the next ten weeks. So, listener, listen out for for me as I slowly go insane over the next 10 episodes and by the time we get to episode tw- tw- 22 it's just you on your own well i'm chirping in the background or it's just going to be nick <laughs> pitching me ideas on like what sleep deprivation does to a person um, uh, here's my suggestion for a topic simon can you comb your hair with butter <laughs> <laughs> just be like what are you talking about yeah <laughs> So it's episode 13 this time around. Spooky. (laughs) So I got to thinking, really, like whether there are a lot of similarities uh, in terms of superstitions and fears. We've looked at a few things in the past, for example, quark being used as a healing agent and things like that. This is 13, so let's start with numbers. Uh, So 13 is unlucky in both cultures and a lot of cultures around the world. And I didn't really know why. Apparently, uh, mathematicians and scientists, they point to uh, number 12 being the problem here, really, because 12 is often referred to or considered a perfect number in the ancient world. Quite a few examples of why this is the case. So the Sumerians developed numerical systems based on 12. Most calendars have 12 months. A single day is, of course, two 12-hour day halves. And so a lot of people kind of think that just being so close to a perfect number has made the sort of the black sheep of the first 
13 digits. Now, there are also a couple of religious examples here. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, the Bible for a split second here. So the 13th guest was, of course, Batman Judas Iscariot. In the Bible, Judas Iscariot was the 13th guest to arrive at the Last Supper and, of course, went on to portray Jesus. And also in ancient Norse, uh, there is also a theory that Loki appeared at a dinner party in Valhalla as the 13th guest, upsetting the balance of the 12 gods already in existence. Those are a couple of reasons why 13 might be unlucky. So obviously, let's not be too pessimistic. Let's talk about lucky numbers. Nick, do you have a lucky number? I have two lucky numbers, which... Greedy. Greedy. Yeah, yeah, you know. Don't know why I got stuck on... I've told you about this before. Uh, 7 and 11. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. I think I heard that as a kid watching like Nickelodeon, like 7-Eleven, watching American TV shows. I just like the the, the ring of it, man. 7 and 11. Mm -hmm. It's like basically 711 was the number. Which was okay until like the uh, queer Duncan started using it as their like number. I can't remember what it was for. Like, who cares? It's the queer Duncan. Does anything have to make any sense when you're talking to people who deny COVID and the lockdown? And so they started using it, and it made me question whether it's still my lucky number. But it still is. Still is. Maybe I'm just a, a product of of corporate America that I've chosen <laughs> I've chosen the name of one of the largest corner stores to to, to be my lucky number. Yeah, I think that does deserve some clarification. That Seven Eleven, for those who don't know, is indeed a convenience shop that is very very prominent all over the world now. I think they're easy in Thailand. Southeast Asia as well. It's mm. not just North America anymore. But yeah, it's mm -hmm. uh, a chain that sells hot dogs and Slurpees and chocolate bars. And if I'm right, the, the idea is it's open from 7 till 11. I right? think that was the original idea. A lot of them are open but it's 24 not the hours same now, and things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure. Mm. But 7 is one of the German lucky numbers. So there are primarily 2, 4, <laughs> and 7. 4? Uh, yeah, 4 is a lucky number. And it comes from the Glücksklee, uh, which is the four-leaf clover. Right. Apparently. Okay, that makes sense. Now, of course, this is this is a big part of, uh, of luck imagery uh, in many cultures of... When we think of the four-leaf clover in England, I think most people go to Ireland and that really aggressive, stereotypical uh, iconography that's pretty yeah, unpopular today. Well, is it, it's a shamrock, right? Yeah. So, like, the shamrock is, is... I mean, it's on the shamrock rovers, the football team, Celtic Football Club in Glasgow. They use the, the shamrock as their as a badge. But it's also the the, the badge of, of uh, Greuther Fürth. Indeed, yeah. Indeed, yeah. In your neck of the woods. Indeed. The, the neighbouring, um, uh, well, sort of the rival second half of the city of Nürnberg's foot uh, and yeah they are the, they are the Kleeblad. Now the other one which is the same as yours is seven and apparently this is to do with Marienkiefer, uh, the ladybird or the ladybug depending on where you're from in England uh, or the UK and apparently this is because they're often represented as having seven black spots on their back and if they land on you it's good luck. So they, that's what you need to do, uh, aim to get a ladybird on you and then you're doubling down on your seven luck. Oh, I'm just going to go outside and find some. Yeah. Well, I think this is the interesting thing with the ladybird. Like, when you see one, you're like, oh, that's really cute. But I don't know if you've ever been in a place where there's been, like, a swarm of ladybugs. Uh, <laughs> and it happened in Portland uh, when we're living there. And suddenly, when you see them by the hundreds, they're they're not quite as cute <laughs> when they're, like, crawling in through your windows. Nothing in a swarm is good. Nah. I don't know. It's it's lady ladybirds is a is a sign of luck. That's a funny one. Magpies were the thing in Britain. Magpies were a big one. Not not a thing here at all. Like you see a you see a magpie and it's unlucky. But if you see two magpies, it's lucky. I can't remember what it is. You've got to say something as well. There's lots of superstitions about seeing magpies. That's the one for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, and four for a boy. And it goes on 
And there are also people that salute a magpie yeah. every time they see one, including when they're driving their cars. So you'd see people in my village like saluting out of their window at birds. It's definitely not good for insurance claims. I had a friend at, at school who did used to do that frequently. <laughs> we all used to do it eventually. That's the thing. Like eventually, you fall into these. This is the interesting thing with this whole area of sort of good and bad luck. That if somebody explains it to you, oh, it's good luck. There's a really good chance you're going to fall into that action as well, just to sort of protect yourself. So, so you said you said the number four was was lucky in Germany, and uh, I did a bit of research. Well, actually, I didn't do a lot of research. I knew this because uh, I studied it at university. The number four in China is is actually bad luck because the symbol for the number four is also the word for death. Or oh, it's similar for the word of death, yeah. Indeed it is, yeah. I did know that as well. Oh, oh what? You, I paid for an expensive education and this is knowledge you just got for free. Disgusting. I, I think I, I might have also been taught it at uni. Well, okay. <laughs> All those fees we paid were worth it. Yeah, so the the, the symbol for the number four is uh, similar to that of the Chinese word for death. Also, uh, in a similar sort of vein, number nine in, in Japan is similar to the Japanese word for torture or suffering. So the number nine is seen as is negative. And one last thing, I've got a question for you. Do you know, and this does connect to Germany magically, do you know what I what I would be afraid of if I said to you, I have hexacosoe, hexaconta, hexaphobia? Uh, it's the fear of... Hexa, hexa, hex is five, isn't nope. it? Why do you know the word hexa though in German? Oh, a witch. Right. Okay, we're getting closer. I, I'm, I'm at a loss here. You're gonna have to have to fill me in. If I have hexacosoe, hexaconta, hexaphobia, I am afraid of the number six six six. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I'm come on, like it's not a word that. We're coming across. Do you know how I had to watch a video on pronunciation for that? So <laughs> don't get too excited. Um, obviously, 666 is not a number you want to see anywhere, especially daubed in blood on your wall. Definitely don't want to see that. <laughs> okay, so in Germany, there are lots of things you can do, especially as a foreigner, that can bring you bad luck uh, or at least get you reprimanded by people you're with. Uh, so here's a quick guide of some of the key things you'll be doing uh, as you try and integrate uh, yourself into German culture. Uh, so first off, one of the first words we learn when we're drinking is Prost, uh, which is the German word for cheers. Uh, not as versatile as the English cheers, which we can use as a thank you, um, but yeah, Prost. Uh, and when you say Prost, it is vital that you make eye contact with the person you are clinking glasses with. Uh, if you don't, they will tell you off. That's almost guaranteed, uh, because the theory is that you will have bad sex for seven years. Which is a weird thing, I think, to be to be told by someone, like, you're going to have bad sex for six years. Uh, seven years, sorry. You know, for the, last, for the last few weeks we haven't talked about sex. I was dead happy that we didn't talk about it, and now you brought it up. No, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's really weird. It's just a glancing blow <laughs> of, of sexual conversation here. Um, Such I mean, unfortunate phrasing. <laughs> It was very deliberate. <laughs> yeah, but I've, I've seen I've seen you get pulled up on this before. I know I've been mm-hmm. pulled up on it before. We're both really bad because in England, you can just kind of ram your glass into the middle of a crowd and vaguely cheers each other, and that's fine. It's so intense, though. This the stare is so intense, and it's just it's like and if you've got like twenty people at a table and you say cheers and you've got to look at everyone, it just seems like it seems very much like a seventies. 
a 70s superstition, you know? It doesn't feel like this mm. was what they were doing hundreds of years ago. It seems like a funny joke that's just been taken a bit too far. It's definitely been taken too far. People need to chill out about the eye contact and just accept that if you're sharing a drink with someone, that's good yeah. enough. Yeah. It, next person that calls me out on it, I'm going to just complain until they shut up. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's Prost. Eye contact, bitter. Yeah, the next one is knocking on tables. And this is regularly seen if you ever see a stamp tish. A stamp tish is a, uh, a regular's table at a pub. Sometimes they're reserved or you'll just be a group of people who meet on a on a, a day of the week or every day at the same time. And yeah, it's uh, the stamp tish was traditionally made of oak. And it's a holy tree that the devil was unable to touch. It's always the bloody devil, isn't it? He's a bad man. Yeah. He is a bad man, you know. He's got a, he's got a rep. You gotta watch out for Satan. And by knocking on the oak table, you're indicating to your friends that you weren't the devil in disguise. Because that's something I'm constantly worried about. Is like, am I speaking to Simon or is it secretly Satan? I can never be sure. <laughs> Have Blood, you got cloven hooves? Blurred line sometimes. I mean, for me, it sounds like a ruse from oak table makers uh, who are just like, landlord, the only way you're gonna know, the only way you can put your guests at ease is if every table in here is made of oak. And everyone knocks yeah. on them. Otherwise, yeah. you could have all sorts of reprobate guests. Well, they didn't. They didn't have Netflix. They didn't have social media. They didn't have any of the the sort of entertainments that we have nowadays. They just must have been sitting in their like hovels, going like, "What weird, weird shit can we just make up now?" Like uh, oak tables, oak tables. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Oak tables. Just one specific and, wood. and staring at each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> elm is fine. The devil can touch elm. <laughs> no, I do like. I do like the. They're knocking on the tables because it's a quick way of saying hi to a group of people. So weirdly, Prost takes up a lot of time staring at everyone saying cheers. Whereas if you walk into a room or a pub where you've got a group of people that you know, you can just knock on the table and say service and, and everyone says, hey, service. Yeah. And that's fine. You don't have to stare at everyone or go around the table shaking hands like you're trying to trying to convince them to vote for you the next election. Well, this is the other side, isn't it? Shaking hands with everyone when you walk into a pub and that is it's pretty weird. Uh, to do so yeah that's tables staying with the theme of prost for a, a moment longer is w- prosting with water or cheersing with water and of course this is a pretty common bad luck thing to do but i didn't know how severe it was apparently cheersing with water in your glass means you're wishing death on all of your friends uh, apparently <laughs> it is it's, it's pretty bleak uh, the ancient greeks uh, came up with this and they toasted their dead by raising a glass of water. That's apparently the origin of this. I say this is pretty standard in most countries. Uh, most European places don't approve of water pour, so the chance of it happening is very low. But if someone tries to push you into it, you can say, I don't want you to die. Yeah, next up is housewarming. Uh, if you are invited to a housewarming in Germany, you should bring salt and bread, which would ensure that they never go hungry in their new home. However, what you want to avoid is spilling the salt as that can cost you seven years of bad luck. It's another seven years, yeah. yeah. Well, that's salt, man. But you, this, the salt thing's interesting because the salt thing, I f- I'm fairly sure this is true. But salt was obviously incredibly valuable in the past. The idea that you would throw it away was seems a terrible idea, you know. Don't throw, be like throwing away fifty euro notes, you know. Don't don't do that either. And so I think it's something to do with the idea of like creating the superstition in order to make sure that people didn't just willy nilly throw salt around. All them salt fights that we have, you know. <laughs> but isn't there also something about the devil on your shoulder with salt as well? Like if you do spill salt, you have to throw it over your shoulder to block the devil. The devil's getting a lot of a lot of airtime today, isn't he? He's uh, 
Yeah, are you sure? Are you sure you're not? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be watching Simon to make sure no horn, horns appear from his head. Or I can smell sulfur. Unfortunately, I'm not rich enough to have an oak table <laughs> to prove myself. Uh, I could do some IKEA plywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's no, what mate. Satan would say. At least by the Swedish standards, I'm I'm not the devil. <laughs> Whilst we have housewarming, another gift uh, that you shouldn't give is knives. If you do gift a knife, uh, it's, yeah believed to cause the receiver injury and sometimes even death. Cause them injury because they don't know how to use knives. I mean, it depends how quickly you give the gift, I suppose. If it's in a stabbing motion, <laughs> then I guess I could... Just give me this! <laughs> but yeah, if you, Quick, if you, grab it! If you do handle first, I think surely this is a, a safe gift. I mean, I'd be delighted yeah, yeah. with a nice kitchen knife as a housewarming gift. Uh, so yeah, yeah, any listeners who come to my next housewarming, a knife would be fine by me. Um, though my German wife might be freaked out. That seems like a hint. Yeah, yeah. I need a good knife. I'm going to turn up at your housewarming, right, and I'm going to intentionally spill salt and then just give you a really massive knife. <laughs> I'm going to go find the most ridiculously large knife I can find, like a machete. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get thrown out of your housewarming. Apparently, following on to gifts is uh, wallets as a gift. You can't gift an empty wallet, which seems like a sensible superstition. You know, if you're getting a wallet, you might get some money out of it. You've got to put a coin in it to ensure that the recipient will never be poor. I would take a note. I mean, I, I remember when I was about 15, I bought myself a new wallet and it, I was very happy with it. It was leather. It was very nice. And then I realized when I transferred all from my old wallet to the new, I didn't have any money left to put in my new wallet. And that was a real low moment in sort of my own financial arrangements i was like i bought a new wallet and i got nothing to put in it it was yeah it was a quite deflating. a sort of moment of realization that maybe i didn't need that leather wallet yeah staying with gifts uh, for another one apparently shoes as a gift this is primarily to, to women apparently and the information we got is you'll only have yourself to blame when they run away in them giving your wife shoes ancient sexism it is it's pretty don't give your wife shoes she might use them to go places and become independent <laughs> like, <laughs> jesus christ i mean there's a thing about new shoes and putting them on tables right you're not meant to put new shoes on on a table that's meant to be i've heard that's a mm-hmm. a, a, a superstition but I think I think most of the time I wouldn't buy shoes for my wife because our tastes are so divergent that I would get her some rocking Nike Air Jordans and she would just think that I was a imbecile. Well, I think she thinks I'm an imbecile anyway, but maybe more so than she would on a normal day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I often request shoes as a mm-hmm. gift. Like it's one of my favourite things to get. So yeah, uh, I've not I've not run away in them so yeah, far. Please buy us shoes. <laughs> We won't run away. <laughs> yeah, thumbs up uh, is the next one. Thumbs up versus the Daumendrucken. This is the difference in the way you display, I guess, what, what's a thumbs up? Like a positive hand mm. signal. Hope. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the rise from the custom of gladiators fighting in ancient Rome. Hands with their thumb up indicated the gladiator would be executed, whereas hands with the hidden thumbs means that they were to live. Uh, it's just an indication of good luck, and, and I think I think there's a lot of debate about what the hand signal for gladiators or for mm. for the for the um, the audience watching spectators watching a gladiator fight what the hand signal was, but it's generally accepted that that a sort of thumb signal was something. But yeah, so what you'll see in Germany is instead of people giving like a a thumbs up, what I mean, what would you see? You would you don't see them. I mean, they they would normally say "Ich drück die Daumen." Press my thumbs for you. Um, so it's used more in the sense of hope. Uh, an optimism there uh, than it is there. But I think we can just stay with the Russell Crowe school of gladiators and assume that the thumbs 
uh, up and down are what they are. But I assumed that was a historically accurate uh, mm-hmm. documentary. You know, are you not entertained? You better fucking be. <laughs> that's all. That's all Russell Crowe does. Just historically accurate documentary Sorry. films like Rom- Romper Stomper. Uh, and Master and Commander. Just... <laughs> That's a bull. <laughs> Robber Stummer. Oh, okay. I, uh, I was, was thinking a... like Robin, Robin Hood. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just, that's what I think of when I think of Russell Crowe. <laughs> right, we'll, we'll leave that topic behind and go on to birthdays. Uh, and this is something that I, I've had perpetual beef with because in Germany you will get told very very quickly that you're not allowed to say happy birthday to someone before their birthday that constitutes before midnight and so they celebrate into their birthday so if somebody is born on the 8th that means on the 7th you'll meet in the pub and then the reason you're there is this person's birthday but you're not allowed to mention it until the clock strikes midnight and then everyone says happy birthday and then everyone it's like okay it's midnight i need to go home i've got work tomorrow um, <laughs> I, I think it is just ludicrous but my wife is very sensitive about it but this idea of like presumption is the problem because in england we would say to each other happy birthday for two mm. days away for next week for next month even we don't care at all because we assume in our endless positivity that everything is going to be fine until then the germans being raised on the true brother grim stories apparently are far more pessimistic about the likelihood of making it through the day and so yeah you're, <laughs> no, you're not allowed to say happy birthday early <laughs> i mean even yeah. even on my wedding day uh, i encountered this because we got to uh, the location where we were doing our ceremony and all my friends from the uk my brother included all said to my wife and i our congratulations because they knew we were there and we were going to get married. And my wife was just like, why are, they, why are they saying congratulations? We're not married. Like, nothing's happened. And I was like, yeah, but it's going to, isn't it? Uh, so they can say congratulations. <laughs> so, yeah, this is yeah, a, yeah. apparently an issue. I don't know if, if this is a sensitive issue in, in your German family. I don't know that it is. I mean, it's not, not in the nuclear family, maybe mm. in the extended family. It's not something I've come across. I've been told by people like, like I, I intentionally like have my birthday on on days that are not the day of my birthday. If I can have it before my birthday, it's even funnier because you do see German family members sort of going like they've got like a look on their face of like this is this is very obscure. <laughs> what are we doing here, celebrating a birthday that hasn't happened yet? I mean, it just makes much more sense. And if you got a, if your birthday's on Tuesday, like why not celebrate on the Saturday or Sunday before and just mm-hmm. be able to celebrate it? I. Again, I, I'm going to get pulled up on this after this recording is released. Uh, I'm going to get feedback on this, so we'll move swiftly on. <laughs> yeah, go on, go on. Yeah, so we're moving on to from birthdays to weddings. At the end of a wedding, when the bride would usually throw her bouquet to usually the bridesmaids or any women who wish to try and catch the the bouquet, mm-hmm. or men in in some instances. Like this is a quite an, like a simple thing to do in in most countries that do this, like Britain and America, is to throw your bouquet to. Your your bridesmaid or whoever else wants to catch a bouquet and the indicator being that'll be the next person who gets married is the person who catches the bouquet in germany there's a slightly different tradition that involves the bride and groom going to their homes to their marriage <laughs> yeah. bed uh while they do this the bridesmaids and groomsmen turn around take off their socks or stockings and fling them in the direction of the newlyweds whoever succeeds in hitting one of them in the face uh, will be the next to marry it's just like they've, this is insane right like this and this frankly did not happen at my wedding like never ha- i've never seen this happen before this seems like a 
I guess if you go into the Oberfalls, maybe that's what they do there. I don't know. <laughs> Divas Darkest Bavaria, maybe. But I've never heard of this bomb before. It was new to me. That's why I had to ask about it, because it is just bizarre. Throwing socks at people's faces mm-hmm. on your wedding day. But, I mean, yeah, there are some weird things. I mean, you mentioned the Oberfalds, and that's probably a region where this could happen. But, I mean, kidnapping the bride is a pretty standard oh, yeah, yeah. thing here. And you have to go and find them before you can have your wedding, and, like, you leave the guests. It's just all a bit bizarre. But British, British weddings would benefit from kidnapping the bride, because the idea is that you create a mini pub crawl within your mm. wedding. So you kidnap the bride. Usually the, the groomsmen or the, the family of the groom will kidnap the, the bride. In inverted commas, is kidnapped. There's not... They're not bundling her into a van with a sack on her head, um, hopefully. And they take her to a pub and the, the groom has to try and find her. So if you do it right, you can basically create a little pub crawl within the uh, the actual experience. It's, yeah, it's, it's all right. It's quite fun. It's quite fun. I'm assuming grandma stays at the first venue and just waits for everything to start up again. It just seems like a great opportunity to leave the people you don't want to drink with at the first venue. Grandma's sitting at the table, the lights go out. <laughs> just like, where is everyone? <laughs> no, usually there's like only a small group of people. We did this at my brother-in-law's wedding. I enjoyed that part. And like everyone was like, they're stealing the bride. And I was like, I'm going to the pub. It's <laughs> <That was laughs> another example of Nick saying the silver lining. Yeah, uh, always. These, uh, always. <laughs> the the last on our list of German superstitions is smoking. Uh, it's often believed in Germany that lighting a cigarette with a candle kills a sailor. Huh? Okay. Uh, <laughs> the idea actually originates from a time when sailors attempted to increase their, their, their small and meagre incomes by selling matches. By using a candle, you were saving money that would have otherwise gone to a sailor and thus indirectly responsible for their starvation. Which is, yeah, pretty mm-hmm. bleak. Uh, German smokers sometimes knock on wood three times. Again, is it an oak table? Satan somewhere, probably. I'm assuming it's oak, yeah. When using a candle to light a cigarette, uh, this is supposed to cancel the bad luck. So, yeah, there's, there's just a, a many different superstitions that you can buy into when you join the ranks of, of, of Germans banging oak tables, pressing their thumbs, not giving wallets without money in them. There's so many different exciting things they don't tell you about in the brochure before you come here. So ho- hopefully we can avoid someone getting told off at some point in the pub. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if we've done that for one person, yeah. job complete, yeah, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> very very weird just there's just more superstitions in germany than you would really think from from the outside the assumption that the germans are quite straight down the line turns out they're actually terrified of pretty much everything and everything being (laughs) satan So moving on from superstitions, uh, this is an article from Süddeutsche Zeitung, süddeutsche.de, and it's a simple title that just says, Ich the extra title or the subtitle would be, Von der Bedeutung des Wörters im Fußballsport und hier besonders beim Ruhmreichen FC Bayern. So yeah, this is an article that is, it's quite an interesting one. It poses the question of, do we have anything to learn from footballers when it comes to the pandemic? And it's based on an incident or discussion that's been created which centres on Bayern Munich and their coach in particular, Hans-Dieter Flick, or Hansi Flick as he's known. Recently, Bayern Munich played in the World Club Cup, which they won. And that was a bone of contention for a lot of people that the football team was flying to far-fun climbs to play in a what is not really a 
particularly important football tournament and one that traditionally European football teams have tried to avoid playing in or haven't really found much interest in playing in. It's not really celebrated. No one no one does a open top bus tour when they win the World Club Cup. And that was one part of this issue was this an accusation that they basically just wanted to win lots of trophies and lots of prestige at the sake of of risking infecting themselves, infecting others. Uh, when criticism was laid in front of Bayern by the media and by commentators, Hansi Flick responded by saying, Ich finde so langsam kann man die uh, sogenannten Experten gar nimmer hören, which simply translates, yeah, well, I, I think I think you can you can hear too much from experts, essentially, which is a pretty contentious thing for a football coach to say when he's talking about, yeah, about a pandemic. So, uh, Simon, how do you feel about football coaches wading into discussions that are perhaps not in their wheelhouse? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just really stupid, isn't it? I mean, obviously, these, these, these are public figures uh, who are contractually obligated to give uh, pre-match, post-match interviews, and so they are asked about a range of topics. And, of course, in these mm. uh, difficult times, it's inevitable they're going to get asked their opinion. But, I mean, to just come out and say... I've basically I've had enough of listening to experts or so-called experts, the Sorgenunden experts. Like that is a pretty brazen uh, abuse of your position of power and privilege. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, Hansi is primarily dealing with a group of men who who are part of his first team, but he's also responsible mm-hmm. for the care of, of of under 18s. There are children who he is responsible for, uh, and voicing this is in public. It's just absolutely insane. Uh, Bayern are the biggest club in Germany and one of the biggest in the world, and this is not going to go unreported. So yeah, I think Hansi is is pretty foolish to have done this. The person he was directly criticising was an, a person we've mm. mentioned already in the podcast, I think last week or the week before, is Karl Lauterbach, who is, you mentioned he's like the Fauci of, of Germany, or he's like uh, Sir Patrick Valance or Professor Chris Whitty in, in the UK. It's just, yeah, it's just incredibly presumptuous. It's incredibly dangerous in, in this climate when people are looking for excuses to ignore rules. It just seems to, it seems, it doesn't surprise me this is coming out of Bayern. It feels like to me that Bayern does get a lot of special treatment, but it does get criticised a lot, but that's one point. But the thing that always gets me about Bayern is they seem to staff their entire back room with people who just can't shut up can't show up whether it was it used to be Uli Hernes who would appear Beckenbauer who frankly after his after what he said about Qatar he went to Qatar and said oh I didn't see any slaves and you're like yeah Beckenbauer you represent the German football federation they're not going to show you the slaves that are building the the stadiums you Mm. moron like I didn't see it so it mustn't be real Uh, or Rummenigger all of these people are just they've just got to have their, their names in the media it feels like they just can't show up and they will just comment on anything if, if if anyone puts a microphone in front of their faces so yeah well, i mean the issue with a lot of these people i mean especially with rumenego and beckenbauer is these these guys were heroes uh in their playing days as well and so they've always existed in a world that is is different where they can get away with saying whatever they want it's like if if in the 90s david beckham has said some controversial stuff as a nation, England would have let that slide because of his significance for us. I think these days players aren't given that same grace. Um, but yeah, Beckenbauer is referred to as the Kaiser, you know, the king. 
the emperor. Um, so yeah, that, that reflects on his, his status within German culture. But I mean, naturally, as English people, we we're not particularly big fans of Beckenbauer because he's pretty pretty disgraceful about our country sometimes. Beckenbauer saying negative things about England is kind of for me is much of a muchness. I mean, there's plenty mm. of, of English uh, media on Germans and and the German football team. So, I mean, I'm not going to pay too much attention to that. What what appalls me about someone like Beckenbauer is he's in a position to affect change and what he tends to do is not affect change because like a lot of people who are interconnected with UEFA and FIFA, do we have to talk about corruption? There's a lot of corruption out there. I'm not saying Beckenbauer's corrupt, all I'm, well, aside from morally perhaps, but to, 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 to defend the Qatar situation when the evidence is blindingly obvious to everyone, it's, it's, there's no debate to be had. I mean, the other problem is that he's also, because he's been there, he sort of uses this empirical trump card that he believes he has. So he said in German, von arabischen Raum habe ich mir ein anderes Bild gemacht. Und ich glaube, mein Bild ist realistischer. So from the Arab region, uh, I got a different impression and I believe that my impression is more realistic. So because he didn't see these things and because his notion of slaves is apparently ancient Egypt, like everyone tied up in shackles to each other and like being whipped just old school bullshit mentality and it's it's disgraceful that he's as a representative of the of the dfb that he's allowed to say this stuff without losing his job immediately um because we know from the numbers and from the reporting that hundreds of slaves have not only been forced to work in qatar but have died working in qatar and yeah there's just zero empathy from the regime at, uh, at Bayern, unfortunately. It it's, speaks to something we, we talked about last week where you have, I talked about people having, a, getting a title like a prof, becoming a professor or a doctor and assuming that somehow bestows them with a universal knowledge on mm. every topic. And it, and I think there's an element of that with, with within this discussion between like sort of Rummenigge, Hansi Flick, Beckenbauer, the, this idea that I think if you point a camera at someone enough and ask someone's opinions enough they feel like their opinions are Mm. are, are worthwhile offering on on topics what's interesting i suppose and the question i guess we should ask is do we should we really be paying that much attention to what a footballer or a football coach thinks about pandemics or about serious issues what do you think well i mean no i mean these these people especially in the modern game they operate in a bubble so socially and in in terms of sports as well when we look at the German model, uh, teams like, for example, Dortmund, like a lot has been made about the educational standards that are expected of their young players. Uh, so people like Marco Royce, they didn't just like glide through on the back of being a professional. They have actually been schooled in a very legitimate way. Uh, so I'd probably be more likely to listen to the opinion of a German footballer than an English one. Um, but at the same time, like when it comes to sports people like no i don't think any of them really have much ground to give opinion on this but i guess it's that it's that thing of we sort of attracted to asking asking football is difficult questions it's, it's happened in the uk and actually is a good contrast i remember jürgen klopp having uh, several interviews where he's been asked about and this is the 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 in complete contrast to Rummenigge, uh, to hansi flick to uh, beckenbauer uh, he was asked about brexit 
and the first thing he said was why are you asking me about mm. what I think about Brexit and and he actually gave quite a good answer but he's like I'm a football coach dude ask us about football topics and I'll tell you but I'm not here to, I'm not a, a politician you don't you don't need to know what I think about the political situation it's much more important to ask the people who are responsible for it which only garnered him more praise mm. I mean he's I think a lot of football fans in, in England think Klopp's a very good guy, not just yeah. a intelligent football football manager, a successful football manager. They think he's actually a good person based on this level of modesty he seems to have. I can't think of a German who's had more of an impact on Britain's, and England's especially, opinion on Germany in recent history. Mm-hmm. I mean, not many German footballers have come over to the Premier League because... If you want to leave the Bundesliga, surely Spain or Italy is a more appealing prospect than going to rainy uh, Newcastle, for example. How, eh? <laughs> but I think Klopp, as you say, has come in with this real sort of honesty that is really rare uh, at football management. Most of the managers we see are so polished, so PR trained, that every answer feels like it was prepared. Whereas Klopp, you always get the impression he speaks off the cuff, uh, honestly, and my god is he a really charming and, and mm-hmm. seemingly very smart man as well like he's not just spouting crap so i mean yeah there is often the accusation that there are no mm-hmm. philosophers coming out of football i think the last one as a player mm-hmm. that i can mm-hmm. think of is Cantona, who was a very esoteric philosopher <laughs> but yeah, it's just not something you really attribute mm-hmm. to them football media likes the idea of the philosopher footballer and they mention the philosopher footballer in the start of the introduction of this article where they talk about uh george valdano who played alongside maradona in in the um, 86 world cup it's interesting that there's a new breed uh, of footballer in britain who who represented mm-hmm. by 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 people like Marcus Rashford is a good example, but Jaden Sancho has similar has uh, similarly comes across very well in in in, in the media. Um, Amadala Lukman at Fulham very similar. He's played in Germany too. But these yeah. these young footballers who when they're interviewed are, are very very smart, very intelligent. But Marcus Rashford uh, is uh, a hero to a lot of people because of his, his his movement against the British government who were refusing to feed school kids during school holidays because, you know, what did I say last week? Oh yeah, that's right. The British government fucking hates poor people. And th- then there's another example. Uh, yeah. yeah, but he, he, he activated his, his uh, celebrity to, to fight what he saw as an injustice. And he won. I think twice and he is by all accounts uh, just a good guy just a really good guy who understands who had the experience as a child of, of, of food poverty and doesn't want other kids to experience it and uh, yeah that's the new breed of not philosopher footballers but maybe humanitarians footballers so I mean yeah to this notion of philosophy and football I mean one of my favourite Monty Python sketches of all time is philosophy world cup where you have like Socrates playing against Kierkegaard is is wonderful. But when we think about sort of managers uh, and players speaking truth, the two examples that I always think of, one from Germany, from Sepp Herberger. Yeah, he was asked, I think, before the Wunder von Bern famous World Cup win. I think he was a coach then. Really sorry if I'm wrong. Uh, and he was asked a stupid question. And he succinctly described football uh, as the following. He said, the ball is round and the game lasts 90 minutes. That's fact. Everything else is pure theory. Uh, that's a good quote. This is great. And from uh, from the UK, Gary Lineker, who is, of course, a Tottenham legend, a Leicester City legend, mm-hmm. an England legend, a Barcelona legend, mm-hmm. a Japan legend, 
and a host as well. He's, he's legend everywhere. He said, football is a simple game. 22 men chase a ball for 90 minutes and at the end the Germans win <laughs> there's no there's no denying that there's no denying that there, see there are yeah, still philosophies in football history <laughs> <laughs> you can count on us German footballers join campaign to support gay colleagues and this is an article from Deutsche Welle DW.com and this follows Elf Freunde, the 11 Friends of Foot uh, magazine and publication, uh, which gained 800 players as part of their support for gay players coming out in German football. And this included players from the Bundesliga, such as Matt Kruis and Christoph Trimmel of Union Berlin, Derek Boyata and Nicholas Stark of Hertha Berlin, Sebastian Olsen of second division side St. Pauli, and German international goalkeeper Almut Schult, just a few of the 800s. And Elf Freunde published this where each of these individuals was holding a sign that said, Ihr könnt auf uns zählen, which translates as, you can count on us. Uh, so this kind of started uh, with Philipp Lahm. Those of you who don't remember, Philipp Lahm was a, a mainstay of the German national team and of Bayern Munich uh, for almost his entire career. He captained both and yeah is a real icon of modern german football and so philip lahm has written a book that is coming out soon uh, his biography and he was asked uh, in the publication series of interviews for this whether he thought a gay footballer would be welcomed in the bundesliga yeah and he said at the moment it seems to me there was little chance that a player could successfully come out in the bundesliga and come away only halfway unscathed uh, so this is from his book das spiel die welt des fußballs so yeah, Philip Lahm said these comments that he thought basically a player wouldn't be able to come out as gay and successfully perform their job in the eyes of the crowd, uh, fan base, etc. Nick, how do you feel about Philip Lahm's comments and the uh, the following Elfreunde publication? Well, I mean, he's not he's not he's not wrong, right? There's a reason why there's only one openly gay male footballer. It's it's the like. All you, if you want to understand the issues around LGBT rights in football, all you need to do is look at the over-the-top reaction, certainly in England and other and other countries too, when footballers wear rainbow laces, for instance. There's a rainbow laces campaign in in, in the UK. I think similar initiatives around to Europe. Uh, this idea that by wearing rainbow laces you're showing solidarity with the LGBT movement. There's a, there's an issue in football with things that are seen as socially unacceptable, such as homophobia. It still seems to be a holdout. Homosexuality is, is not welcome in football, and it doesn't surprise me that the footballers don't want to come out when they're playing actively playing football. When you hear some of the stuff that people think is acceptable to stay in the stadiums, I've been to plenty of football matches and I've heard some of the most disgusting stuff coming out or coming off the terraces whether in german or in english and especially especially i think to be the first to do to do it when you're playing football it's you're just going to be in the eye of the storm the media will be on you maybe not necessarily negatively but certainly they would want to they would they would want to know everything right and you would become you'd be right in the spotlight and i think i think the idea of being in the media spotlight sounds attractive to some people because they don't really think what it actually means and entails. I don't think anyone wants the, the, the eye of the national media on you at any point. Certainly not in Britain, where basically there's no rules when it comes to being a journalist. There's some like sort of faux rules, but basically um, they've never really resolved the issues around the 
overstep of the media on people's in people's private lives i w- i mean i i would i would be terrified I'm, it gives makes me nervous just thinking about it having having to sort of be the first so it's understandable and i mean philip has some sort of understanding of this because there have been rumors about philip lahm and his sexuality in the press as well trash journalists have have, have made claims that his marriage is a sham and he's in a same-sex relationship with someone that lives in dortmund i think was the theory and i mean lahm also appeared on on the cover of front uh, in 2007 an lgbtq magazine and was interviewed and he said if a player is gay he's still my teammate my relationship with him wouldn't change at all. I'm happy to live in a liberal, open society in which tolerant coexistence is possible without any discriminatory prejudices. He's thought about this. Like this isn't a flippant retort. Like, and I think the idea of he's my teammate, it wouldn't matter. And I think that is true for a lot of professionals. But Philip speaks of a place that, that what Germany can be a lot of the time: a liberal, open society of tolerant coexistence. Um, but yeah, he, he knows from being the victim of rumour, the victim of abuse, the victim of speculation, that it would have an effect on, on the player's ability to be what they want to be, a professional footballer, um, and represent their, their team, club, city, whatever they want to do. When we see the coverage of this, a lot of it sort of pointed at Philip Lahm said something that's pretty unfair, but he, he was quite measured about it, and he didn't denigrate homosexuality he was just honest about the reality as far as i know there's only one openly gay player in professional football at the top levels and he's in the mls uh, and as nick speculated when he came out he was the focus of every interview and, and there's so much abuse already measured at footballers i mean the, 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 everything is used as because it's seen as like mm. so oh, it's we can we're just trying to distract them player put the player off by by saying stuff like my football experiences started in scotland watching watching falkirk fc in like a broken down first division stadium right and i mean yeah there was there was that but there was also the the attempts to put players off were more like make like i remember barraging a footballer because he had a 50 pence head that was the joke is he couldn't head, head the ball and he had a 50 and, he, and people were going like 50p heed heed and they're like, like and it was and it was like a joke and it was like like that was that was seen as fair game but it changes when you start abusing people there's just it's there's a history there's a history of appalling chance i mean football in itself is is a is a polarizing hobby by its very nature you choose your team and you stick by your team and this whole thing about being a real fan what me you i'm a real fan you know i support the team till i die and all Mm. of this sort of super hyper masculine bullshit these are people man like Mm -hmm. i know they're very wealthy people but they're still people i think this is initiative it's just it's it's a positive step it is only one step because because okay great the football has accepted we need we need to talk about why is it that football stadiums are seen as an unsafe place for LGBT uh, footballers. What? Why is that? And, and I don't have the answers. Well, I mean, the good news is that it is changing, and there are clubs leading the way on this. I mean, obviously, I can't think of any off the top of my head in England, but when we look at other leagues, there are. Uh, so, for example, I'm I'm wearing the shirt right now, the Portland Timbers in the MLS. Uh, the Rose Army, they have a very, very strong movement that is anti-homophobic and discriminatory, like very, very inclusive, rainbow flags being waved by ultras. It's all about inclusion and respecting who people are. Uh, here in Germany, we have the the uber-cool St. Pauli, who really are leading the way. So they have anti-homophobic stances and chants and songs. They have... Uh, 
choreographies that have things like love who you want all colors are beautiful as their main message they're really they're they're pushing uh in this direction and yeah of course there are some fans who may not want their club to move that direction but they can yeah they can fuck off like these clubs are going to be moving in this direction because it's the right thing to do uh, and if your fan base is filled with racist homophobic dinosaurs then that's fine leave them in your wake and keep moving forward when these are people it's just people these people are, are humans like it's it just it's despicable like it's a reflection of society as a whole it is just like football is is not a is not a, in a living in a vacuum like these are things that that people believe and and, and we're so I think, especially now in a lot of countries, there's, there's deep polarization between different groups. There's there's a delight in division. There's an excitement mm. in I'm I'm in this group and you're in that group and we're against each other. And ultimately, these are just people just trying to live their lives. And and, and I just think it's it it's something that we don't we don't push more for. Yeah. And I think it has to be something that's not just coming from the top. It's coming from the bottom as well. It has to be the fans that are, that are doing this are pushing this and making mm. and making football stadiums, horrible environments for homophobes. This, this is, this is what I would mm. want to see is more of this. You're not welcome here. To wrap this up, Max Cruz, who I spoke about earlier, the union Berlin striker, he said, I can understand anybody who would prefer not to face up to it. But if one of my teammates came out, I'd protect him from the idiots out there. Um, yeah, Max knows what's up. Like, it's, it's society accepts this Fuck stuff, yeah, man. Uh, generally speaking. But there are definitely a handful of idiots who are going to criticize a player based on their sexuality, and that shit's got to stop. Uh, totally unacceptable. So yeah, you can count on us as well. Uh, so well done to Alpha Freunder um, for getting 800 players yeah yeah M more more of it i say more of it more of like it england premier league what are you gonna do yeah exactly exactly uh there has to, has to be more proactive like we can't just pretend with rainbow laces that that's enough as nick rightly said the people who feel it's okay to voice these uh, positions have to be made to feel made aware that it's not acceptable at all for me personally it's zero tolerance if i hear homophobia i'm gonna call it out and that's like a promise. Like, if you hear racism, call it out. Because ultimately, it comes down to you, yeah. like, as an individual. What are you going to do about it? It's not just a fight for LGBT people. It's not just a, a fight for those who are discriminated against. It's a fight for all of us. And and it might sound a little bit yeah. uh, a little bit overwrought, but it's the truth. If you if you believe these things, then 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 live them. You know. And if you're accepting other football fans making homophobic comments, call them out. Don't just stand quietly by. Because you're worried about about upsetting people. Fuck that. Every club has this problem. Every club has mm -hmm. to deal with it. And the future is bright for sure. But uh, yeah, we still got work could be to fucking do, brighter uh, to make this the same. Mm. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Okay, so moving on, we want to finish today's podcast with a funny story that comes from theguardian.com. COVID inspires 1,200 new German words. Only a few weeks ago, we were saying about how, how English is, is slowly taking over the German language. But lo and behold, after a year of the pandemic, we now have 1,200 new German words to talk about the pandemic. Some of, some of the highlights being Corona Muda. What is Corona Muda there, Simon? Uh, so yeah, Muda is tired. So if you're Corona Muda, you're tired of COVID-19. So yeah, you, the restrictions, whatever, 
you're over it <laughs> to use the la parlance yeah <laughs> and we have corona frisure and corona frisure simon is mm. your corona haircut your frisure is your your barnet your hairdo uh, i shave my head so i don't have this i do have a corona bard <laughs> uh, i've got a corona but you've, beard. you've had a you've had a beard all from 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 before the pandemic so it's pre-pandemic it's definitely more there's more roughage <laughs> How dare you? Um, this, this is Corona beer number two. But yeah, I'm, I'm keeping this one uh, until we can all meet in the pub uh, and then we'll shave me ceremoniously together, I think. <laughs> I think I'll miss that. Uh, so there's a German project currently documenting the huge number of new words that have been coined uh, in Germany. And uh, there is uh, a, a vast list, as I said, 1,200 new words. So we're going to run through them. A lot of them appear to be... Uh, one of my favourite parts of German language, which mm. is the compound noun, where you take you take one, two, three, four, five, six words, slam them together, and you've created the name of something. So we had Corona Muda, we had Corona Frisure, but we also have Overzoomed. Yeah, can I, if I guess an Overzoomed. <laughs> so yeah, I don't think we need to translate that for the English speakers. Uh, so you can be Overzoomed, you can also have Corona Angst. Which actually works in English, right? It does work. Yeah, it does indeed. Uh, and something that I'm experiencing at the moment, I won't lie, uh, is impnide. Impnide. So what is nide, Nick? Well, nidish is jealousy or envy. It is indeed. Envy or jealousy. So you for impnide, it means you are you have envy of those who have been vaccinated. Too right. What I like is is the next word, which is kushal contact. I love the word kushal. Kushal's lovely. Kushal Ooh. means cuddle or cuddle contact. contact. And it's for the specific person you meet for cuddles. I mean, this this sounds like a, just a really nice way of saying, like, Coro- Corona Sex Fat Pal. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. It's the new Netflix and chill. Because, <laughs> I mean, this was this happened, and I think it was the Netherlands. Mm. Like, the government, it may, might not have been the government, but an authority came out and advised young people to basically pick a cushion contact, mm-hmm. uh, someone that they were going to have sex with during the lockdown uh, to bubble mm-hmm. with. Uh, effectively so yeah cushion contact puts a nice little uh, warm yeah. glow around what, what is probably more grunting than cuddling <laughs> abstand beer is something we can do uh now if we're careful uh but probably not to be recommended abstand is distance to keep your distance so if i need someone's too close to me now in germany i can just shout abstand um and that lets them know that i'm scared um but yeah drinking <laughs> A beer at a safe distance is called an Abstand beer. The, the, the other words seem to sprout from the more optimistic first lockdown. Balcon singer, uh, which is mm-hmm. a balcony singer, and you remember, I guess maybe about April, May last year, there was a raft of videos online, lots of viral videos of in Italy and other places of people playing music on their balconies, and everything seemed a lot more community-spirited back then. Now it feels a lot more... Well, it feels different, put it that way. So we had a, a trumpeter uh, that lived near us, and he would play "Ode to Joy" at six o'clock every night. Uh, I think that lasted about three weeks. <laughs> yeah, eventually someone would just knock on his door and go, "Can you just stop it now?" <laughs> People were Corona muda, and of, and of course, certainly this is like the first month of the lockdown. We had hamsteritis or hamsterkaufen. I think yeah. was also a term that we had, uh, which was to stockpile food, yeah. or in the case of the early lockdown, toilet paper. Um, which was yeah, it was. It feels like we're talking about a million years ago, but this was only 
last year, you know. Take the next two, Nick, because you hate these people. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I hate them with a passion. I find them completely worthy of all levels of derision. So we have Covidiot or Covidioten, to give it its plural, basically referring to those those lovely people in our midst who share videos denying the existence of COVID or telling you that the vaccine is going to make your eyeballs spit fire and um, <laughs> all these other inane, badly researched videos. It, it's amazing to be self-educated and still dumb as a brick, but still, what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> yeah, so we've got the, the COVIDiots there. Then we've got Mask and Throttle, which is a mask idiot, and that is someone who wears their face covering under their nose. Rummenigge does it. Of course he fucking does. Every photo I've seen of Rummenigge, he's got his nose peeking out. Twat. Bellend. <laughs> Sorry, I got carried away then. Idiot. <laughs> Uh, the one final one that I want to pull out from here is uh, Corona Fuscruz, which is the cutest one, I think, because it rhymes. Uh, so this is a, a foot greeting uh, through Corona. So this is something I do with people when I see them now. Instead of shaking hands, you just extend your foot and give them a little little side foot bump. And uh, that's a Corona Fuscruz. Yeah, I like it. I like, I like the term <laughs> Fuscruz. I want to say that more and more Fuscruz. every time I hear it. <laughs> That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Simon and I, as ever, really appreciate it. Before I do the usual, I just wanted to say that we've had various bits of feedback, some positives, some not so positive. Nothing mean, mind you, just differences of opinion on some of the topics. I think I can speak for Simon on this when I say we really appreciate all the feedback. It does help us improve and, and make this a better podcast. One of the main aims when we started this was to create a podcast that people would not only enjoy listening to, but would also like to engage with. So I say this, please feel free to reach out. Let us know what you think, even if it's not always positive. We appreciate hearing from you and we enjoy differences of opinion. And as long as we respect each other, it's all good. On that tip, we had a bit of feedback about where you can find the podcast. We're on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and most podcatchers. If you can't find the pod, let us know and we'll see what we can do. So to finish, you can tweet Simon on at Decades From Home. You can tweet me on at 40% German. You can also get us on 40% German at gmail.com. Also, take a look at 40% German.com. We're always updating. Uh, usually every Saturday, we have a new article up. So, yeah, check us out. Give it a read. Send us some feedback if you wish. Uh, otherwise, thanks again, and we'll talk to you all next week. Are you still listening? I mean, really, you guys must enjoy my mistakes more than I do. Ich finde euren Mangel anvertrauen beunruhigend. Anyway, I've got to get back to a baby, so take it easy, everyone.